So I uh, have been plumbing the depths of Colossians chapter 2 the last couple of weeks, and it's been a wonderful experience for me uh, personally, growing in my my knowledge and understanding. I hope it's good for you as we study this together and go through it together. Um, Last week, we only went through one verse. This week, I promise, we're going to get through more than one verse, Uh, but... uh, Really, uh, Paul's uh, so skillful and so obviously guided by the Spirit, guided by the Lord Himself to, to, and how He does this, but He just weaves such a great argument in this chapter on the sufficiency of Christ. And we talked last week about the dangers of a Christless philosophy. This was a danger that the Colossians were facing. This is a danger that we as Christians in the current world are facing. That we can get enamored with philosophy apart from Christ and not focus on and pursue Christ Himself. As we go into this section, we're going to look specifically at Christ and Paul's going to, to point to Christ as the complete, all-sufficient one. The only one that is needed for us as Christians. And as we, we look then next week, Lord willing, we'll go back into Paul pointing back to the legalism that was also rampant in Colossae. And saying, how, if you have the all-sufficient Christ, if you have the completeness that comes with knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior, how could you ever, ever step back into legalism? How could you ever think that that's going to work? And so Paul's got this flow of argument that's just so skillfully done, and I I pray that the Lord would help me uh, communicate that as skillfully as possible. But as we go through um, our our passage today is is Colossians 2, verses 9 through 15. The theme of this passage is that Christ, that the Christian uh, teaches the Christian that Jesus Christ is the complete fullness of deity and the complete fullness of the Christian's identity. And, and I'm going to use the word complete many, many times, and that's intentional because that was what was happening in Colossae. That's what Paul was teaching against, is that the, the divinity, the essence was divided and subdivided and redivided into all these little pieces and you have to just grab pieces and basically you know, play like a, you know, an amoeba blob and try to get more and more and eventually you grow and you level up in your understanding and in your, your, your wisdom and you suddenly have a different level of relationship with the divine. And Paul says, no, no, no. If you have Christ, you have everything. You have complete everything you need because he is the complete fullness of deity so the outline uh, again just so you all know too if you're ever interested you don't have to but I do post these online with the lesson if you ever want to go back through it you may not want to have to take pictures of every single slide but if that helps you I'm not telling you not to do it I'm just saying if you're interested uh, but the outline this, this, uh, this morning we're going to go through is, is the complete deity of Christ declared in verse 9. The completeness of Christ defined, or I'm sorry, our completeness in Christ defined in verses 10 through 12. And then our completeness in Christ 
accomplished in verses 13 through 15. So that's uh, a pretty simple uh, layout. Um, we'll get some more subpoints in there as we go. But I do want to go ahead and just read together the passage that we're going to be studying, just so you get kind of the flow of his argument. And we're going to start with verse 8, just again, because it connects to what we're going to talk about. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. So, if you... We're listening at all. Hopefully you caught that Paul talks about Jesus over and over and over again in this passage. In Him, through Him, by Him, in Him, in Him, over and over and over again. So it should hopefully be obvious that this is a passage that is exalting and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ so that we might come to know Him better. So as we go into the complete deity of Christ in in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And again, Paul is, is, is teaching to Colossians that say that the fullness, this actual word fullness, we'll get into that in just a minute, this fullness, this, this essence, this divine parts are splintered across the universe. And it's the, the thinking man's job to go and pursue those little pieces of divinity so that they can become more like the divine. But MacArthur does a great job in, in explaining things to someone who doesn't know Greek. But he says that the Greek word for fullness here is Peloroma, and that Paul uses this word to intentionally counter the Gnostics' use of the word to describe the piece or part of the divine essence split into infinite pieces. So we'll get into the, the word study a little bit more in a moment. But in him, in him, again, this is, this is Paul turning his, his sights from those empty and worldly philosophies that he talked about in verse 8 and pointing to Jesus Christ. He, he kind of chides them. Says, he warns them, do not let anyone take you captive to any principle 
other than Christ. And then because in Him, that's what basically the flow, He's for in Him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so we already had this, if you were with us when we did Colossians chapter 1, we, we talked through the, the hymn that Paul wrote or, or used as part of his passage in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 18, uh, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God, and we went into all these things that Jesus is. And in verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, again, that's the same word, to dwell in Him. Uh, Paul, in his, in his uh, talking about what his goal is, his desire for the Colossians and for believers in general to accomplish, he says in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he, he says, that, you know, I want that their hearts would be encouraged that they would be knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ Himself. In other words, Christ is the revelation of all the mysteries of God. In verse 3, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, as Jesus Himself taught, he is God. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Okay, that's pretty bold. Uh, and we might not say, well, why didn't he just say, I am God? Well, guess what? The people that lived during that time knew exactly what he was saying. And it says that they picked up stones to stone him. He says, if you, if you, in verse 38, that same section, it says, but if I do them, he's talking about all these works that he's done, why are you stoning me if I'm doing all these miracles that obviously are from God? Though you may not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He's saying, I am God. The Father and I are one. There is no separation there. In chapter 14 of John, he, he chides his disciple. And again, think about this. You've lived now with Jesus. You've walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years. And at the end, you're still kind of wondering, is he who he says he is? Is this someone I can trust? And this is what Jesus says. It says, how long have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In verse, chapter 17, verse 21, he prays for us that, that we as the church, as the body of Christ, may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And he's just over and over again, Jesus points to the reality that he is God. He is one with the Father. He is one uh, in the deity. And again, as we, we look at this, this is stuff that we should obviously, hopefully, know. <laughs> like this should, this, none of this today, hopefully, is like brand new. You've never heard this before. But it is good to be reminded of these things. Now, as we get into the phrase, all the fullness, right? All the fullness. This is what J.B. Lightfoot said. 
He says that, that Jesus exhausts the Godhead manifested. In Him resides the totality of the divine power and attributes. In contrast to the Gnostics' doctrine that the Peleroma, right, the fullness abides absolutely and wholly in Christ as the Word of God. The entire light is concentrated in Him. And, and again, this, this usage of the word, the fullness of God, means that there is no division. There is no way you can splinter Christ apart and, and pick the piece you want from Him. You take Christ as He is, the fullness of God. In bodily form, we actually talked about this some again in chapter 1, but I want to review with you we, because he's, he's using this phrase specifically to counter another of the Gnostic errors, which is the idea that all matter is evil, right? And only that which is spiritual or of spirit is good. And so the, they said Jesus didn't really have a body. He wasn't really there. He just appeared kind of like, you know, I think of the Star Wars force ghosts, you know, like you, you, you have this image and you see and you think, okay, that looks like Jesus, but it's not really. He doesn't really have a body. And, and again, John 1.14 is pretty clear. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reality is, as Jesus is talking, He, he slept, he, he drank, He ate, he, he wept, He touched people. They felt His touch. He wasn't just some ghost. He had a body. And so when Paul points that out, he says if you can imagine all of the fullness of the deity poured into a human body, which, guess what? That's really hard to imagine. <laughs> That's what happened. Right? The, the, the theological term for that is, is the hypostatic union. I didn't put this in the slide, but hypostatic union is the reality that Jesus existed in the, the full di uh, uh, nature of divinity. He had full godness and full humanness at the same time. Okay? It was one of those rare situations where 100 plus 100 equals 100. Okay, because he wasn't somehow split and two different parts. He was one full God man. And so Paul is, is reminding these Colossian believers and he's reminding us, this is the one we serve. This is the one we have committed our lives to. This is the fullness of God. That's why we are to, to be careful what we allow ourselves to be pulled into, what we allow ourselves to be tempted by, or in, uh, uh, we allow ourselves to be taken captive of, which is what he used in verse 8. Because it's so easy to be taken captive, be carried away by things that are apart from Christ. And Paul says, no. You have the fullness of deity in Christ. And then he goes beyond that. And again, there's some parts of this that are things we all know, 
I know that as I read through this passage and I was studying, like there, there was a lot of this that I was like, okay, yeah, I, I kind of know this, I understand this, it's a familiar topic, but then you really consider what it means, and then you go, okay, wow, I don't even know how to explain this. But look what he says in verse 10. And in Him, in Christ, you... That's you and me and the Colossian believers and all those who are in Christ have been made complete. And what you have to understand is that's the same word. You have been made full. You have the fullness of deity in you. And so really what we have now is this section where Paul is going to turn the scope and he's going to look at our completeness in Christ. And he's going to help us understand that we are complete in Christ. And that's where you see the over and over again, in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Him. Because our completeness can only come from Him. It can only be found in Him. And so as we pursue God, we pursue Christ, we find that we are complete in that. He says, in Him you have been made complete. Complete. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of issues there, right? And there's a combination of God hid it from their eyes. Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak in parables and you're not going to understand it, right? Hearing you might not hear, seeing you might not see. And so there was a judgment there because they had rejected the true God, right? And part of the problem, and we'll get into this honestly a little bit more next week, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had set up their own system. Right? They had started with Judaism, they had started with the Old Testament, and then they added on all these other rules, and they got so focused on their rules that they lost sight of the God that they were supposed to be serving. And so when God Himself came down face to face with them, it didn't match up with what they thought it should be, and so they rejected Him outright. Yeah, they started pursuing a legalist view instead of a God-focused view, and that's actually what we're going to talk about next week, is that is a constant temptation for people that are religious, right? If I can do it, if I can figure out a way to make it happen myself, I'm, I'm going to be likely tempted to do that. There's a certain amount of faith that comes with saying, okay, I can't do it. It has to be Jesus Christ and Christ alone, and they weren't willing to accept God Himself saying this is what I, I am doing, they wanted it the way they wanted it, right? They wanted the political Messiah that would throw off Rome's shackles and, let, and make the nation great again. They wanted all the things they wanted. They didn't want what God wanted. And so that's, that was a big problem. And I mean, again, there's multiple facets to that, but I would say that's kind of the simple thing with them is that Jesus didn't fit the box they had created for him. And so they, they, they rejected him. Yes, ma'am.
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's sad to see, but we see it today, right? We see a lot of religious people that are convinced that they're right with God because of I do this and I do that and I give this and I, go, you know, and they aren't pursuing Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is, is countering, right? That's what he's teaching us is, is that we have to pursue Christ because that is the only place that we can find the fullness that comes from God. So it says in, in chapter, uh, talking about us being complete, again, that literally means you have been filled. If you have an ESV Bible with you, that's what they use in ESV. It's actually the, the, the use back in the old King James as well. So, um, you know, this idea, and again, I love that Paul does this interchange, right? Christ is the fullness of deity, and in him you have the fullness, right? So there's this connection there. In John chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For of His fullness we have all received. So we received of His fullness. We received the fullness that He had. And, and I love this. that It just says, and grace upon grace. Because it is all of grace that we would receive this. Right? This is what Paul prays as he prays to the, to, for the Ephesian church. He prays that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And I think really, as I did a, a brief pass through that, it's more about understanding what God has already done and living according to it than any kind of like, oh, if I just do these three more things, I'll level up to a more full. No, it's recognize who you are in Christ and pursue that instead of thinking you can do it on your own. Again, like I said, MacArthur was helpful on this, and I'm going to butcher the, the Greek word, so my apologies. Um, but it says, because Christ is who He is, we have been made complete in Him. Our fullness is imparted to us. Again, it, we, we don't have fullness on our own. Spoiler alert. Okay, The perfect tense of this word, it's, Peploromona, I don't know, I, I, you can see it there, maybe. Uh, it's, a, it's a tense of this same word, the Palermo, uh, or not Palermo, I'm bad with Greek, never mind. Indicates that the results of our having been filled are eternal, right? Perfect tense means it happened and it continues on forever, Right? So this isn't a get full, oh, whoops, I messed up, I've got to get full again. This isn't a, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing, my level is going down, I've got to refill, you know, like my water bottle, it's getting a little low right now. I can go fill it back up and I've got a full water bottle again. With Jesus, there is no <laughs> refill necessary. We are filled with the fullness. And one of the other commentators had a, an interesting picture and again this is one of those things where we try to explain certain concepts and we can fall short because we don't fully have anything that matches perfectly but he says if i were to take a pint jar and, and allow the pacific ocean to rush into it so you plunge that jar underneath the water it, my jar would be filled with the fullness of the pacific okay he says, thinking of Christ, we realize that because He is infinite, we can hold all of the fullness of deity. 
whenever one of us finite creatures dips the tiny vessel of our life into Him, we instantly become full of His fullness. Okay, and again, that's not a perfect analogy, but I like the, just the picture that, that we need to recognize. Part of it is, it's not like we take away. Like, us scooping up a, a, a jar of water out of the Pacific doesn't really take away anything out of the Pacific, right? It, it's not like, oh no, the Pacific just got drained. No, but it filled that jar completely. And it's the same thing with the deity of Christ, that, that we have the fullness of Christ, we get filled with Him, but it's not like He lost anything. He's not less full now because He gave us some. No, we are full. We are complete in Him. And then He wants to explain what this looks like, right? This, this communion with God, this com- communion with Christ, is that He is the head over all rule and authority. He is the head. And again, we saw this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, right? By him, all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That is Jesus as the head, the top, the preeminent is what we talked about in chapter 1. We see that in Philippians, I'm not going to read all of these passages, but they're there for your, your study on your own. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, for this reason also, now this, is the, this reason is that he emptied himself and, and became uh, and gave himself up on the cross. It says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the first. He is the head. And then there's a picture, and this First Peter reference kind of helps us see that, that there's, there's multiple aspects where you could talk about Christ being the head. But First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, it says, Who is, and again that's Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So again, there's, there's a lot that we're going to get to uh, skirt around because I don't have the full knowledge and wisdom of what 15, verse 15 of our passage says today. right? But there is a, a, a reality to the fact that Jesus sits as head over all rulers and dominions, and that includes Satan, his demons, all angels, all, all. Jesus is the head. Paul talks about that that Paul or that God, Christ has um, authority over all in multiple places because it's true and because he wanted his people to know this. In 1 Corinthians 15 24, it says, Then it comes to an end when he that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when He, that is Jesus, has abolished all rule and all authority and power. In other words, Jesus 
removes all other potential rivals and He is the unrivaled authority and rule over all. In Romans chapter 8, He talks about this this picture of because of what Jesus has done, we have hope despite any circumstance. In Romans 8, 37-39, it says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And then Paul says, For I am convinced, and guess what? That's not just because he was, was deluding himself. He's convinced from the Spirit of God, from the, the God Himself, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the only reason that we can trust that is because He is over all of those things. He controls all. He is the head over all rule and authority. So we have this this communion with Christ is that we are filled with the fullness of Christ. He is our head. We've talked about this before, but the church as the, the, the body to Christ's head, we have a connection with Christ that is certainly supernatural, but it is because of Him and what He has done. We talk about our circumcision in Christ. And obviously, the, 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 the believers in Colossae and the believers that Paul was writing to was a mixture of, of Jewish and Greek, right? Jews and Gentiles. Many of the Jews, and probably all of them, had been circumcised on the eighth day according to the, the law. Many of the Greeks may have been convinced to be circumcised when they came to follow the, the faith, whether that was the Jewish faith or the faith in Christ. That was one of the early challenges with the church is what do we do with all these Gentiles? Do we make them get circumcised? You know, and, and so Paul is, is, is talking to an audience that's very well familiar with circumcision and what that means and what that picture was. But Paul also, this is another area, Toby, where, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I think, lost some of this, is they, they did the letter of the law, right? Do the, do the circumcision. Do the physical act on day eight and you're okay. But throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God said, I'm not concerned about that little boy part. Okay, that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about your heart. And so this, is, this circumcision that we have in Christ does not mean we have to be recircumcised physically. But it's about carrying through what God expects of us to be circumcised in our heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, or chapter 10, verse 16, it says, This is God saying, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your necks no longer. Stop fighting against me. Trust me. Follow me. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, that the Lord Himself will do this. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is what God wants, is a circumcised heart that loves Him 
In Jeremiah 4.4, it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And again, God was judging them and they were physically circumcised. Right? The physical circumcision was not what made them connected to Christ or connected to God in the Old Testament. It was the circumcision of heart that they would love the Lord, that they would obey Him because they cared for Him. Paul points this out in several passages in the New Testament, but he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Right? It's not about this outward facade we can put up and say, look at me, I'm doing all the right things. It's that we pursue God. God. Paul said in Philippians 3.3, we are, of, or we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. We know that we cannot have uh, just physical acts. It has to be at the heart, at the Spirit. In Ephesians 2.11, it says, Therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by, in the flesh by human hands. And he says, you know what? It's flipped. Those of you that were Gentiles that were not circumcised and you were pointed at and mocked and scoffed at by the Jews, now it has changed because you have received a circumcision without hands. And that's really what, what Paul uses. He uses the same term here that this circumcision is made without hands. And that was really interesting as I studied through this because this, this term is used multiple times and it's not always related just to the act of circumcision. Right? Let's see if, if we can figure out what the connection is here. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, it says, "...the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples..." made with hands in 2 corinthians 5 1 it says for we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens and in hebrews chapter 9 it says but when christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not that is to say not of this creation for Christ did not enter a holy place without hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we have not without hands, made without hands, made with you know, these things. What is the connection there between the temple and, and the, the building and, and the, the, the tabernacle? All those things that were made, not made with hands. What is he saying? It's not physical. It's by the Spirit. It's a spiritual temple. It's a spiritual act. It's a spiritual building. It's a spiritual holy place. Right? It is not something that's made with hands. And this circumcision, Paul says, is not made with hands. This isn't a physical act. This is the circumcision of the heart that God had called His people to throughout the Old Testament. 
He says, you have been circumcised by Christ. It says, this is one of the, the commentators. He says, by the circumcision of Christ, we must remember that circumcision functioned in the Old Testament as a sign, again, a sign, not a guarantee, of entrance into the people of God. Paul's point in chapter 2, verse 11, is that the Colossians had already received the sign of circumcision by faith in Jesus Christ. No physical act of circumcision necessary. He says, when you entered in by faith to Jesus, when you trusted Him for your salvation, that is the circumcision of the heart. You don't need one with hands, right? And again, for most of us, we're not dealing with that issue. But that was prevalent, and we're going to talk about that more next week, that, that Paul understands that there was a lot of people saying, if you don't get circumcised as a new believer, you may not really, you haven't followed the Lord. You haven't obeyed the Lord. And so this is where Paul says, no, no. And, and I love that the, we, I don't want to linger on this too much, but the removal of the body of the flesh that word, that removal, is the same word as later on in, in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, now you put them off. And it talks about all of the, the fleshly desires and attitudes that we have. Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, right? Don't lie to another, one another because you've laid aside the old self. And, and again, the idea is this is what's happened. Jesus Christ has circumcised our heart and He has laid aside our old self so that we can walk in newness of life. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the circumcision of the heart, right? Removing of... You know, that's even what he said in, the, I think, the Jeremiah passage. says, removing the foreskin of your heart so that you can love me, right? I could have picked, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, that's what's amazing is there's so many passages that discuss this topic. And again, for most of us, or at least maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it. For me, when I first read about circumcision, I'm thinking that physical act. Right? And I'm thinking that's really all God wanted was you know, the sign of the covenant that, that, that this person is part of God's covenant people. But God said that's not enough. The physical act doesn't do anything if you haven't been circumcised in Christ. Okay, I've got to keep moving along because I've got the deep waters to get into. Okay, so we have been... Uh, we have communion with Christ we have circumcision in Christ and now he, he Paul talks about our baptism in Christ our baptism in Christ it says verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism okay now we know and I, I love we were, in fact my wife and I were talking about that just uh, the last couple of weeks about how wonderful the baptism services at countryside are because over and over and over again, you have people sharing the testimony of how they came to know the Lord and how the Lord rem ultimately removed the foreskins of their heart. 
but we have this picture, and Tom talks about it every single time, right? That there's nothing special in the water, right? There's nothing that happens at that moment, but it's a, a picture. It's an identity of the baptism going down in death and then being raised back up in new life with Christ. And, and that's what we have here. We have been buried with Him in baptism. We, we died with Him and we are going to be raised up. Right? Romans chapter 6, verses 3-5. through five. It says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Are those, are all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through the baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were made, uh, all made to drink of one spirit. And again, this idea that baptism, it's not a physical act, right? This baptism he's talking about is not, did you physically go get in the water? but this baptism of the Spirit. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Spoiler alert, that's because we can't do any deeds of righteousness apart from Him. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, that is the baptism that Paul is talking about. And First Peter says it this way. I love, Peter sometimes just has a way with words, but I love this. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, what we have now is not just about washing your body. Right? It's not the physical, it is the spiritual that comes apart, or comes along with our connection to Jesus Christ. We're baptized in Him. If you're baptized for yourself, right? I just want to baptize myself because it's really important. That's not what He's wanting. That's not what He's talking about. He's saying you are baptized in your connection to and your identification with Christ. Yes, Joan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. We, we go down, we're buried with Him, and we die, we go under the water, and then as we raise back up, we are raised in newness of life with Christ. And, yeah.
Yeah. I think in that specific instance, and I'm not, I have not studied it, so I'm not an expert, but I believe what happened there is that was a picture, right? As a righteous person, the baptism was a part of that demonstration of righteousness, of a desire to follow the Lord. That's what John, John the Baptist was doing, right? These people were getting convicted. They were coming to him, and as a sign of that conviction, as a sign of that, that recognition of their need for renewing and washing, they were being baptized by John the Baptist. When Jesus said, no, 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 this must be done in order to fulfill all righteousness, I think that has to do with the part where Jesus lived on earth for 33 years to fully obey the law and do everything that God had ever asked all of us to do so that on the cross there's that great exchange, right? His full life of righteousness is what we receive as he gives us the punish, or he takes the punishment for the sin that we earned, right? And so he could have, right, logistically come down on Friday, died, been buried, and raised again, but then he would have paid for the penalty for our sin, but then he would have no righteousness in his account to give to us, right? But he lived as the perfect man for 33 years, fulfilling every single thing God asked every one of us to do so that he could pass that righteousness to us in the great exchange. So, All right, we got to keep moving. So our baptism in Christ, our resurrection with Christ, and again, we, these kind of are connected, so there's, there's, there's overlap there. But, but it's, it's what's interesting is that Paul uses this picture of us being raised with Him over and over again as a challenge to live a holy life to live a life that pleases the Lord. In fact, we're getting there in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, to chapter 3 of, of Colossians, and this is what it says. It says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And he's saying, you know what? If this is true, if you're saying, I have been buried I have been baptized, I have been raised up with Christ, then you need to pursue Him. Again, that's why the whole, the whole book is about the sufficiency of Christ, right? It's Jesus Christ we have to pursue. In, in Romans chapter 6, it says, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that he died, he died once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God, not because you follow a set of rules. Be alive to God in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, Paul encourages us that recognize our resurrection with Christ, right? Our identification in the death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Verse, chapter 7, verse 4 of Romans. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another 
to Him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. That we are joined not to law, not to rules, not to legalism, but we're joined to Him who has been raised from the dead. Why? So that we can bear fruit for God. right? Not so we can have a nice life, but so that we can bear fruit for God. So we see that, uh, again, we looked at, at the, the, the complete deity of Christ. We, we looked at the, our completeness in Christ defined as we look at our communion with Him, our, our circumcision with Him, our baptism with Him, our resurrection with Him. And now in verses 13 through 15, we get to our completeness in Christ accomplished. Our completeness in Christ accomplished. And, and uh, again, this is, this is a message that we're all very familiar with. This is a message that I think the Colossian church was very familiar with. And yet, Paul, by the Spirit of God, was led to teach or to talk through this. And so it's important. Right? It's important because we already know that some were being carried away by empty worldly philosophies. We're going to talk about coming up next week that that some are being carried away by legalism, man-made religion in place of Christ. And so Paul here is saying, you can never forget what it is that Jesus Christ accomplished. We can never take our eyes off that. You know, we have communion this morning. And every time we have communion, it's a reminder, right? That's part of the reminder of our partaking in what Christ accomplished. But here Paul is going to show us that. He's going to remind us of the gospel message and say our completeness in Christ was accomplished completely, totally, fully through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now it says, first of all, our complete need. <laughs> you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Okay? You were dead. We, we, we talk through Ephesians chapter 2 a lot. I love that, that passage. It, it's a personally very impactful one. But this also refers back to Ezekiel chapter 37, where. where God says, I, I'm going to go and I need you to speak the Word of God to this valley of dry bones. In verse 4, it says, God said to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the Word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bo- bones. And again, think about this. This is God speaking to bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. That is what happened to each and every one of us if we are in Christ. We were dead we were dry bones, okay? Dry bones means not like roadkill on the side of the road that just got hit this morning, right? That maybe if you gave it enough mouth to mouth, it might come back to life. No, no, no. These have been out in the sun baking forever. 
There is no flesh. There is no sinew. There is nothing. There is no life in these bones. And yet, God will cause that to happen. As I was studying, one of the other pictures of this that, that, again, we're very familiar with. We know this story, but I just, I love this. Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. Y'all want the references. There we go. Is in Luke chapter 15, as Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son. And we know that story, and we kind of know all, all the different aspects of it, but I love this picture in verses 24 and 32 of, of Luke 15. This is what the Father says. This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. As he's, as he's trying to encourage his older son, the one who thought he was righteous, the one who thought he had done the right things but was pouting, it says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. We were dead. In Ephesians 2.5 it says, When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. <laughs> and I love this. Parenthetically, he says, By grace you have been saved. It wasn't anything we did is by grace that we were dead our complete need we were dead we could do nothing there was nothing in us that said god said oh look at what he's doing i like that oh she's doing a pretty good job let me give her some help no we were dry bones completely dead and there because of that we needed god's complete grace it wasn't, you know, it wasn't earned. It wasn't merited. We needed God to be gracious because there was no reason for Him to, to give us life. But He says that He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He made you alive. In Psalm chapter 71, it says, Verse 20 says, You have shown me many troubles and distresses. I'm sorry, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. This is God's work. In Psalm 119.50, I think this is applicable because this is the way most of us come to know the truth. It says, This is my comfort in my confliction or my affliction, that Your Word has revived me. We come to know Him through His Word. John chapter 5 says, The Father raises the dead and gives them life. He does it. He's the one that does that work. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, But if the Son of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also li give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. As we can never lose the, our grasp of the reality that it is God's work and God alone that makes us alive. There are no, no rules that we could follow. There are no uh, laws that we could obey. There are no deeds we could do that would keep uh, or give us life. It is simply... God. 
He has forgiven us our transgressions. Oop, I have a duplicate. There we go. He has forgiven us our transgressions. He has canceled out our certificate of debt. He has taken that debt out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Guys, we can't forget that this is what caused our life. Yes. I th- the reason that it says there, I think, is when Jesus said that, that the w- man went away because he was very rich or he owned much, right? Jesus knew his heart. I mean, that's where we have to remember. Jesus knew people's hearts. He knew that that man trusted in his riches. And so he hit that man exactly where he needed to be hit to say, you're either going to give away everything because nothing is more important than me, or you're going to walk away. But you can't, you can't say, I want, I want God plus all this stuff. I, I want God plus my comfort. I want God plus the peace of, you know, like we aren't guaranteed any of that. And that's one of the problems with a lot of the Christian culture today is that with their teaching, if you just come to Jesus, you'll have a great marriage. Right? If you just come to Jesus, your kids will obey. You know, if you just you come to Jesus, you're going to have money and wealth and health and all these things. And that's not why we come to Jesus, right? We're never guaranteed that. In fact, we're told that our lives following Jesus is going to be very difficult. That's not always financial. It's not always health. It's not always family strife. But it is almost always some of that in all of our lives at some point. But if you're only following Jesus to get some stuff, you're, you're deluding yourself. And that's what Jesus was pointing out to that man, is that this man trusted his riches. That was his comfort. That was his hope. And it wasn't in Christ. And so, yes, he wants to help us to understand that that's going to be a challenge, right? He talks about riches a lot. He talks about money a lot and how much they can keep us from obeying or following the Lord. But that was, I think that was the purpose there is to show this man, look, you trust something other than me. You can't ever do it. Guys, there's so many verses I want to go through in this, but I, don't, I just don't have the time. I do want to touch briefly on um, the, the picture of verse 15 because it is a, it's a challenging verse. It's a verse that have had some different uh, uh, interpretations, right? That, that His death on the cross, we understand, I think, what it means to have our trespasses forgiven. Now, I think we need to remember that, and I will, um, in the, I, the slide version I'm going to come up with is going to have more verses that you can go and study because I think it's a great reminder. We understand that. We, we kind of know what the idea of canceling out our certificate of debt is. We know that Jesus took the debt out of our way. We understand, I think, for the most part, what happened to the cross, but we might not understand verse 15 as well. 
And so I do just want to touch it for just a second. It says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And again, there's lots of pictures of what this means. Did Jesus go down to hell? Did he actually speak to Satan and his demons? What is happening here, right? I think that, that MacArthur was the most helpful to me in a, a quick summary form. Um, this is one of those we could probably have spent a whole hour talking about this verse, but I promised you I wouldn't do one verse at a time. But here's what MacArthur said. God canceled the believer's debt, defeated Satan and his fallen angels. That is why Paul can affirm in Romans 8, 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer, though we still wrestle against the forces of evil, they cannot be victorious. The death of Christ brings transformation, pardon, and victory. That adds up to complete salvation with complete forgiveness and triumph. Okay, and so we need to understand that whatever physically, metaphysically, spiritually happened in that, that time, we know that Jesus now, we've already talked about it in this, earlier in this passage, Jesus now reigns supreme over all rulers and authorities, over all worldly powers, and Jesus has complete and total victory even now. And He would just physically make that happen later on in Revelation. Okay, as Tom's been getting, getting us ready for, right? But we need to understand that it is completely and totally Christ who has the victory through what He did on the cross. And that if we're trusting in anything else, Christ plus or instead of Christ, we are failing. We are not going to have the new life in Christ our circumcision has to come from God. Our identification, our salvation, our baptism, our resurrection all comes from what Jesus did. And we trust Him wholly and completely. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You so much for this time this morning. Lord, there was a lot to get through. But I pray that it was an encouragement to all of us. Lord, that we would trust You completely, wholly, Lord, that we would not be carried away by empty philosophies. We would not be uh, convinced that if we just do a certain number of rules and certain types of, of activities that we can make ourselves right with you. But we need to recognize, Lord, help us to never forget that it is your work on our behalf that gives us salvation. It is completely and totally all of grace and we thank You for that, Lord. Help us to, to live in light of that. Lord, let us take the new life that You have given us and live for Your glory and live to please You in all that we do and say. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.